0: That clock says 1016. I usually wrap up my sermons, start to no, land the plane around 1150, 55. So you guys might want to tell me the correct time right now. So it's just an hour off. That's it? Okay. Somebody's been playing with the clock. Um, my junior year of college, uh, I had a friend uh, named Andrew. Not not the Andrew in our congregation, different Andrew. And um, I was so just encouraged. We had such a great friendship. Uh, we would often pray together and, uh, and even sing together in his dorm room. We just wanted more of Jesus. You know, Christianity was somewhat new to me. And I was just kind of figuring out what there was, what was out there in regards to Christianity. I'd heard different things from Baptist friends, from Lutheran friends, from more charismatic friends. And I was really intrigued by my more charismatic-leaning friends. Andrew invited me to this conference in Charlotte. And I had a lot of anticipation, a lot of excitement as I anticipated this conference. Uh, It wasn't a conference that many of us would probably attend today. Uh, I, I don't know where the organization is now and, and what they hold to. But I'm just going to tell you my experience. This is not an indictment or judgment. Any conference or anything like that. It's just my experience. So I went to this conference down in Charlotte with Andrew. And I'm just there just wondering what more is there of God? What, how, how much more filled with the Holy Spirit can I be? And they're up there and, and the band is playing music. And I'm just into it, got my journal out, writing some things. I'm really just intensely listening to um, the music. And all of a sudden, across the stage comes this woman, and she leaps forth behind the musicians like a ballerina. Out of the blue, I look around, no one is caught off guard except for me. So I just carry on. And... She wasn't by herself. Ten seconds later came up someone <laughs> doing karate moves. All up on stage like this. I looked at Andrew and, 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 and they were, you know, just freely worshiping in the spirit as they would. They seemed really happy. They seemed really filled with spirit. So the music stopped and the preacher begins preaching. And I'm just, Lord, just open up my heart to whatever's here, whatever you have for me. And I'm listening intently, and all of a sudden, a couple rows behind me. <laughs> I look behind me. This is the thing I've heard about this laughing in the spirit. It's contagious. Now, behind me, there's rows and rows of people just laughing, and they seemed really happy. I look at my Bible and look at the concordance, laughter, spirit. Where is this thing? I don't know, but they seem happy. Next day, we go to the conference and everyone there is ooing and awing of what God did last night. And I'm just wondering, we left early. What did God do last night? Well, last night in the air, there was two planes and they crossed each other's path and it made a cross. And at this point... I'm ready to throw in the towel because I see that almost every day and there's many more wondrous, miraculous type things that God has done. But this is what seemingly got the people excited. This is what was held out for people as evidences of the Holy Spirit being active in the church or in the life of the believer. Uh, There was something, a big thing yesterday at Arrowhead Stadium. Uh, Many people came to get kind of, uh, I think, a, a similar kind of joy or filling of the Spirit. Now, the Lord works in various ways. I mean, how many of us have been impacted by books that we read like 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that we probably wouldn't recommend today? Yeah, I certainly have. And the Lord works through those means. I'm convinced that normal graces and normal activity of the Holy Spirit is evidence of a Spirit-filled church. Just normal kind of everyday things, less spectacular things, is an evidence that that occur in a local church are evidences of a Spirit-filled church. And that takes us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 which is found on page 986 of your Pew Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 to 10, which is the whole chapter, uh, found on page 986 of your Pew Bible. Before, since we're just getting into this book without uh, any kind of intro sermon, let me go ahead and give you a little bit of, of background here. Is that Paul cares for all true churches. He does that. Even churches that have severe problems like the church at Corinth. But he speaks of this church in a more glowing way than others. In this letter, there's no obvious problem that he's correcting. He does tell them specifics about the second coming of Christ. Uh, that's That's less of a correction and more of an encouragement and safeguard against misconceptions about his return. He's writing this letter because he doesn't want their afflictions, their suffering, to knock them off course. They have a good foundation. They're headed in a good direction. But he's wanting them to stay on course and not be discouraged in their hearts and deterred from the mission. So go ahead and look at chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the occasion of the letter why Paul's writing to them. First Thessalonians 3, 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. O Thessalonians, you're doing well. Keep marching forward. Do not be discouraged and moved because of the suffering that you're facing. The Thessalonian church is living in a city that is hostile to, faith, hostile to the Christian faith, and they are suffering for it. And they are an example to follow. This is a spirit-filled church. Not because there's a bunch of laughter, though there may have been, not because they saw different signs and wonders in the sky. Uh, they are a spirit-filled church because they're founded upon Jesus Christ. And they have evidences of that. My aim in this sermon is to convince you one in that we are a spirit-filled church. And then to encourage you to keep going. Much like the Thessalonian church. Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Lord, use this word in our lives and in our church. Fill us, O Spirit, more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. A sermon has has two main points. The first point comes from, mainly from verses 1 to 5. That is, what what makes a Spirit-filled church? What makes a Spirit-filled church? Second point is from verses 6 to 10. Four characteristics of a spirit filled church. Four characteristics of a spirit filled church. Point one, what makes a spirit filled church? Look at verse one there. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Paul is the former persecutor of the church who was converted and became now an apostle, an ambassador for Christ. Sylvanus was a member of the church in Jerusalem. You can see that in Acts chapter 15. And Timothy, who most of us know, is from Lystra. He learned the faith from his grandmother and his mother. This letter is commonly known as Paul's first letter, at least the first canonical letter that we have. It was written around the year 50 or 51 AD. It's to a church in Thessalonica, and he greets them in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ with the typical greeting, grace to you and peace. But then he gets a little atypical. He breaks forth in telling them how he consistently thanks God for them. In this affectionate tone, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Uh, The way this is written, it's as if he's mentioning each individual member of this church by name. And giving thanks to God in in their daily prayers for this church. Full of gratitude for this church. Paul seemingly is engaged in regular, extended, sometimes laborious or strenuous prayer. It's a sign to us, friends, just as I prayed earlier earlier during the pastoral prayer, that to keep going to God and praying for things. What's interesting is this church is doing well. And Paul is saying, even though they're doing well, he's continuing to go to God and pray for them. Verse 3 says that he remembers them. He remembers before our God and Father their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul himself has witnessed their faith, their hope, and their love And he knows that these are authentic and sincere Christians. His praying causes him to break forth in thanking God for such a faithful witness. Their sincerity is clear and evident to Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And Paul breaks forth in encouraging praise and tells him the specifics of his prayers. And then we understand just why he is so thankful for them. What is at the core of his gratitude? Look at verse 4. Verse 4, in a sense, says that brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. You are chosen by God. The reason they have faith, the reason that Paul can give such resounding gratitude for their faith is due to God's love on them. See, God has chosen his people, Israel, and now he's choosing people from among the nations. Why? Well, the reason is given here as well, because he has love that he wants to share and extend to others. The reason Paul can give gratitude is because he's certain that God has chosen them because their gospel did not come in only word, but also in power and in the The Holy Spirit and with full conviction. But just notice how in verse 4 he prefaces what he says in verse 5: that they are loved by God and they are chosen by God. That's so important in Paul and Pauline theology for them to understand that God is the one who loves them, that God is the one who has chosen them. You see, so much of life is based on how we measure up. You want a job, what do you do? You You update your resume, you dust it off, and you make yourself look suitable for a job. If a man wants to pursue a woman, he puts, he he tries to win her by looking good, by wooing her with everything he's got. But here in this relationship, notice this between man and God, there's no wooing on our part. There's no use in making a resume of our services to God, our good deeds. There's no cover letter necessary convincing God why he should choose us. It's solely God's love that causes him to choose us. And this is written to give them certainty of their relationship with God and offer troubled hearts comfort. Paul is not trying to set up a debate here. No, he's telling these Christians about this because it's sweet consolation To children of a heavenly father who are going through immense affliction. Because when you are under affliction, when the pressures of this life grow hotter and hotter, then you can begin to doubt God's love for you. And this is how the process of being chosen is unfolded. Look at verse 5. It tells us why Paul and and Silvanus and Timothy are so confident that God's love is fixed on this church. Paul says, we know this because when we preach the gospel to you, you received it in word and power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. In Acts 17, these events are described. We'll get more to that later, uh, the events of Thessalonica. But it summarizes the message that Paul preached. In Acts 17, Paul goes to Thessalonica. He went into the synagogue of the Jews. And using the scriptures, he explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That's the summary of his whole message. That the Christ had to suffer and that the Christ had to rise from the dead. Paul says this Christ from the scriptures that I am explaining to you, this is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. If you are here and you are not yet a Christian, this is the gospel message. This is why we meet here, because we believe this message. Whether you are eight years old here or whether you are 80 years old, this message is important for you to hear and to respond to by faith. You see, the Old Testament scriptures explain that God will send his anointed king in the world, into the world. And his anointed king will also be his beloved son. The king will reign forever, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. But the king will also be the suffering servant, according to Psalm, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Genesis 3, and other texts. But let's just take... Psalm 22, so we understand that Jesus really is the Christ. Psalm 22 says this. It prophesies that the Christ will be treated like a worm and not a man. Psalm 22 says that he will be scorned by mankind and despised by people. It says that he will be mocked for his trust in God even as he suffers. He will be poured out like water. His heart will melt like wax. And it says that he will die. You see, but the scriptures also say something else. That God's king will live forever. And he will establish a forever kingdom. So Psalm 16 says that God will not let his holy one undergo decay. His body will not decay in the ground. And friends, all this lines up with what happened 2,000 years ago with Jesus. All these prophecies are pointing toward one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus never sinned. He loved God fully. He loved people fully. He was treated with contempt. He was nailed to a cross, and he died on a cross. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. The Christ must die, but the Christ cannot remain dead. Jesus died, and Jesus did not remain dead. This is good news to you. So let me encourage you. If you are here and you're not yet a Christian, read the scriptures. That is the method that the Apostle Paul chose, that is often the method that Jesus chose to reveal himself teaching from the Old Testament scriptures and saying that I am the Christ. If you have more questions about that, come find me afterwards. I would love to spend my afternoon talking to you, even five minutes, talking to you of why I believe that Jesus is a Christ from the scriptures. See, Paul is confident that God loves them because of the way they received the gospel message. Look over at chapter 2, verse 13. He says the same thing. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So apparently... This is important for us, Warner Road. There's a way to receive the word of God, but not with power. You see that? Otherwise, he wouldn't be so confident and adamant that they truly receive the word of God. So, for instance, Second Timothy chapter 3 mentions that in the last days, that is, these days that we live in, the days after Christ rose from the dead, ascended on high, in the last days, some will have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. So they will look like they're in the fold. They will look like they are Christians, but they deny its power and and they do damage to God's church. Some people in a sense seemingly receive the word of God. They give mental assent. Yeah, I believe that Jesus is Christ and I believe that he rose from the dead. But in their hearts, they deny its power, its ability To raise the dead. It's ability to have them overcome sin. It's almost like they agree that Jesus is a Christ. They agree that, yeah, God raised him from the dead. But their hearts don't trust that message for salvation and for godly living. So consider Romans 10.9. Which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And... And believe where? In your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So you need this mental acknowledgement and this verbal acknowledgement. But you also need this heartfelt devotion that only God can truly see. If you believe God is God and believe the message of the apostles, you will believe that God is powerful. You will believe that his spirit changes people. That his counsel through his word is the wisest of counsels. That his comfort is the sweetest of comforts. Warner wrote, a spirit-filled church is one that receives the message of the gospel with full conviction. It feasts on the gospel continually in its songs, in its prayers, in its conversation before church, after church, throughout the week. This is a spirit-filled church. continually feasts on the gospel and does not substitute the gospel for any cheap substitutions, no matter how much they might look like the good news of Christ. Well, friends, Paul has confidence here that they are a spirit-filled church because of the way they received the gospel. But then he goes a bit further in our second point. He gives four characteristics of a spirit-filled church. We see four characteristics of a spirit-filled church. These are things that Paul has either witnessed with his own eye or he has heard about from other churches. First characteristic is a church that counts the cost of suffering. In verse 6, they count the cost of suffering. Look at verse 6. And seven. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Thessalonian church imitated the apostles, the church imitated the Lord Jesus in that they received the word. Receiving the word them, brought them affliction and suffering. And at the same time, it brought them joy. That's encouraging, isn't it? You're going to embrace something that's going to make your life harder. You're going to embrace something that's going to cause people to hate you, to scorn you. And their suffering is an example to other churches. Churches in Macedonia and the region of Achaia, churches like ours, Warnell Road. So look back at Acts chapter 17 so we can see just how they received the word. We've talked about it so much. Might as well turn there. Uh, it's on page 926 of your pew Bible. Acts 17, 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay? So that's how they received it. But, but what happened after they received it? Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. If you continue reading, they went to a city of Berea. And guess who followed them to Berea? The leading Jews of Thessalonica. They were relentless in their persecution. And so these Thessalonian believers were able to count the costs. They knew what they were getting into before they signed up for it. They were not lured to Jesus with the message of, come to Jesus, your life will be good, you'll be happy, all your problems will go away. Now they knew it cost them something. But they weren't so foolish to give up eternal life. They knew that giving their own lives even, facing imprisonment, torture, mockery, or, or even death was worth giving their lives to Jesus. Church, remember what Jesus said. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus is trying to tell us something. The apostle Paul is trying to tell us something. The Thessalonian believers are showing us something. And God, through his Holy Spirit, is saying that it is normal and to be expected that you will suffer if you follow me. This is different than just kind of... Common suffering that happens in Buffalo, or or in, in premature twins, or longings not met that are good longings. This is particular suffering because you are aligning yourself with the King Jesus, and not with the kings of this world. Or the ways of this world. Warner wrote, Christians throughout the globe have closely imitated the apostles and the Lord Jesus in their suffering. Many to the point of death, many to the point of imprisonment, many in less hostile societies have been mocked or ostracized by family or in the workplace. This is normal. We have lived in a unique time and in a unique place. That is not something to begrudge or to feel bad about. It's merely a fact. And it's something to be careful about. May we not be sung to sleep by the ease of our lives for being a Christians in this country. We may not ever see the kind of persecution that these Thessalonians faced. But we shouldn't be unaware that it could come. And we shouldn't be unaware, as Hebrews 13 says, that brothers and sisters who are part of our family are suffering or being tortured and imprisoned because they follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, we did not get to choose the place we get we lived in, the year we lived in. So what do we do with that? I think we thank God for our religious liberty, and we are on guard against how it can make us sleepy in our faith. Now is a time to count the cost. Not when the pressure increases. It might be too late then. Now is the time to use our religious liberty to pray for and raise awareness for those who are more severely persecuted. Christian, it's unhelpful to minimize your own sufferings or afflictions. The own kind of awkward workplace environment that sometimes you make it because you want to tell people about the sermon on Sunday or a conversation you had, or you want to bring up the gospel to a friend. Don't minimize being ostracized or or mistreated or even looked at weird for being a Christian. That doesn't help you. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will have losses for following Christ. And just because it's not as severe as others, that doesn't mean it's not hard. You will be neglected by friends some of you have already felt what it's like to lose friends for becoming a Christian. Some of you have felt what it feels like to be looked down upon by family members who had greater aspirations for you. These are still part of the worthwhile cost of following Christ. And this will resound to others. Look at verse 7. So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. You see, God sometimes put Christians through the fiery furnace of suffering because it makes Jesus look valuable and worthwhile and beautiful and glorious. It makes people look at that Christian saying, What is he or she doing? Why are they giving their lives so much to this Lord? Suffering is God's sovereign means to draw people to himself. Friend, even your suffering. Don't begrudge it. Embrace it for what it is. Count the cost. That is an evidence of a spirit-filled church. Secondly, we see evangelism going forth in verse 8. Verse 8 says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not need to say anything. Paul's saying it's already been said. You see, they're getting persecuted, not because they silently are kind of assenting to Jesus, but because they're talking about Jesus. I believe it's John Stott said about this, this verse. I remember reading it years ago. They're, they're gossiping the gospel. They're talking about the gospel to others, in the workplace, in the market, to their neighbors, to their family members. And people are hearing about it and turning from whatever they're worshiping to God. The word of the Lord is the gospel here. It has sounded forth like a reverberating drum, like a, 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 a gong in the good sense of the way, not like in 1 Corinthians 13, but, but you just bang it, it goes forth, it echoes, it reverberates. The gospel is ringing out of this church a church that is active in evangelism and sending forth missionaries. And, and God in his divine wisdom even gives us evidence how this church is a church that sends out missionaries. So you don't have to turn there, but Acts chapter 20, verse 4, we read that Aristarchus and Segundus. I think that's how you say it. Uh, of Thessalonica accompanied Paul on his trip to Syria and Jerusalem. We also read that Aristarchus, who's from Thessalonica, went with Paul to Ephesus and he went with Paul to Rome. That Jason, who was here, is persecuted and the founding of this church in Acts 17, he traveled with Paul to Corinth. The Thessalonian church, they knew what they were signing up for. They knew it would be costly and they knew that part of their cost and even their privilege was to tell of the good news of Christ. They were an evangelistic church. Alexander Duff, a a Scotsman. From the 1800s, missionary to India said that the church which ceases to be evangelistic will soon cease to be evangelical. Let me say that again: A church which ceases to be evangelistic will soon cease to be evangelical. Now, I know that word has been hijacked, and I say this probably every third sermon, but i 'm not going to let it be hijacked. It is such a beautiful and glorious word evangelical, heraldal of good news, proclamation of wonderful, life-saving, life-saving, life-altering news. And it's been used throughout Christians throughout the history. So, so no matter what, what president or government leader might use it for his or her own advantage, like we're going to still use it here in this church until it becomes just absolutely distracting and unhelpful. It is a great word to use because that's what these guys are doing. They're going forth, they're heralding the good news that Jesus is the king to be worshipped and to put your life and, and to follow with all of your being. The church which ceases to be evangelistic will soon cease to be evangelical. One wrote, The logical and rational response to such life-saving news is this. That when we are not heralding the gospel, something is off in our thinking if you are in Christ. We're in many ways not thinking clearly. Our vision is blurred. So let me quote an atheist to help us understand this more clearly. Many of you have probably heard this. A Penn Jillette, magician, actor, comedian, author. He does a bunch of different things. He, uh, he's with a guy named Tiller. He's a tall guy. The other guy's a short guy. Uh, he said this, I don't know, over a decade ago after one of his shows. He was handed a Bible uh, by a man, and the man uh, shared the gospel with him. And this is what uh, this atheist, Penn Jillette said. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect them at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them This because it would make it socially awkward? And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself? How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He continues... I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Friends, let's learn from this atheist. It is logical to tell people about the gospel. If you've been saved by the gospel, if you believe that life goes on in eternity in heaven or hell, the logical conclusion is that we need to tell people this good news. Not one of you came to faith on your own. Someone opened their mouth, whether it was your parent, a sibling, a neighbor, a friend, a preacher on the TV, or a preacher in, in church. Someone told you the gospel. That is God's sovereign means by saving people, is that we open our mouth, people hear the gospel. And they respond to it. I praise God that an evidence of this church is that we are evangelistic. One wrote an evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving in our church is that there are so many testimonies of people sharing their faith and people over the years coming to faith. Now just consider how we sent out people going to four different, five different places. In the, in, in the world this summer, to places like Central Asia, the Middle East, to South Asia, where there's little to no access to the gospel. That's weird. Who does that? Who says, go over there, spend a portion of your life getting likely rejected by people and ridiculed by people? Now we do that because it's logical, right? It makes sense. Because we have a burning passion to let others know about the good news of Christ. Friends, this should not be a burden that causes us to lose sleep. Maybe occasionally, but that shouldn't be the normal pattern of our lives. See, Matt Rhodes in his his new book called No Shortcuts to Success says this, that once we have communicated the gospel message clearly, credibly, and boldly, we can happily leave the outcome of our work in God's hands. We must remember this so that we don't become overwhelmed. We must be like that farmer who goes out, sows a seed, and goes back to sleep. All right, thirdly, a third sign of a gospel preaching church or a a spirit filled church is repentance. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Just imagine what an uproar was going on in Thessalonica to have these people who formerly worshipped carved images and and placed them in their house, on on their mantle. Idolatry in the form of carved images has been commonplace for centuries. Even now, people worship carved images all throughout the world. Over a billion people, likely over two billion people. And that was commonplace in Thessalonica. But idolatry is is, is not merely just worshiping a carved image. You can idolize, you're idolizing anything if you love it, if you crave it, if you worship it more than the living God. We have a more subtle idolatry, which is more prominent in our culture of, of buying things with money. Of just thinking if we just had this house or this vehicle, this relationship, then we would actually be happy. And God would stop withholding from us. But, my friends, anything we put before God is idolatry. And Paul's using this language, I think, taken from Ezekiel 14.6, which says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols. And turn away your faces from all your abominations. Repentance is a gracious plea from God. Thomas Watson said this about true repentance. He says that repentance takes this form. It's the sight of sin, the sorrow of sin, the confession of sin, the shame for sin, the hatred of sin, and then turning from sin. Church, it's not enough just to see your sin and to cry about it. That's not repentance. It's not enough to feel bad for your sin. It's not enough to even feel convinced that you have sinned or confess sin. But repentance is turning from your sin and turning toward Christ. I think many of us think repentance is a scary word. I remember even, before, I didn't grow up in a church, I just remember watching TV and just... I don't know if it was a preacher or a movie, but I just remember him using the word repentance. Like it was like ammunition to throw at someone and make them feel horrible. And right after, talking about burning in hell forever. So in my mind, coming into to Christianity as a teenager, I was like, ooh, repentance is scary. Even though I think I have some residual effects from that word, but it's not a scary word. It's a gracious word. It's, it's a kindness of God. That he would redirect our eyes away from sin and toward our beautiful Savior. That that we would behold Jesus with nail-pierced hands waiting to embrace us full of mercy and love. Friends, that's repentance. It's a kindness from God. Richard Sibbs in the Bruised Reed says, If the sweetness of all flowers were in one, how sweet must that flower be. In Christ, all perfections of mercy and love meet. Repentance beholds him, turns to him, sees him as merciful and loving, and as far superior to whatever is drawing our attention away from him. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, says, I learned the first rule of repentance is this, that repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin." Repentance is showing us that there is a superior satisfaction, a superior pleasure in Christ than there is in sin. Praise God for the way that this is a church where we are not creating a culture that is afraid to acknowledge our sin. One of the ways that Paul encourages his church is he says, you're doing this, and he says to keep on doing it. And church, when it comes to, to sin and repentance, there's going to be continual fight in our own hearts individually, in our own church, corporately. To be afraid to acknowledge the ways that we've sinned. And don't let that be the case. Talk about your weaknesses as, a Paul, as Apostle Paul did, who boasted in his weaknesses. Confess your sin quickly. I think you'll be met with a bunch of people who are emulating Jesus' tender mercy, who will pray with you, who will call you up out of your sin and encourage you. Lastly, we see in verse 10, characteristic of a spirit-filled church that is a church that waits for Jesus. A church that waits for Jesus. Look at verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, when Jesus comes back, there will be many people who have reason to be fearful. Because his wrath will pour out upon them. The scriptures are clear about that. But for those of us who are suffering under affliction in this world. That will be a sweet experience. Because Jesus has already delivered us from the wrath to come. You see Christ experienced what we deserve when he was on the cross. Namely God's wrath. The divine curse. Without that there's no atonement for it. Sinclair Ferguson says that our deepest problem is not that we do not share the Father's horror of sin or his understanding of what it deserves; rather, we deserve what sin actually deserves. And unless Christ bears this for me, He cannot redeem me. It is not enough that, in some sense, He must that He absorbs the wrath of God, but He He but that He does not bear it. Our Savior must bear the wrath to which we are liable and deliver us from the wrath to come. Friends, that's what Jesus has done in our lives. There's no wrath on us anymore because Christ has taken it. He is our Lord and Savior whom we wait to come. As we close here, conclude look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the hope of a Spirit-filled church. This is their steadfast hope. Look at chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. these words friends a spirit-filled church is evangelistic repents looks forward to christ's coming the other thing i said counts the cost of following christ let's pray lord make us more and more spirit-filled we thank you for the clear evidences of grace we see that are only from you We are a church that uphold your scriptures that are founded upon Christ our cornerstone. Continue to grow us up into him that we may be more mature, that we may be complete men and women filled with Christ Jesus. Only your spirit can do this. We praise you, O God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for how you've worked in this church. We pray that you'd work more and more. Encourage us with these words, that your love is fixed on us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.